Welcome to another edition of We Need to Talk About Movies. Brought to you by Banterflix.com. And now, here's your host, Jim McLean. Hello, hello, hello. Yes, I am indeed your host, Jim McLean, the editor-in-chief of the Bandaflix Movie Review website. Welcome to the latest episode of We Need to Talk About Movies. If this is your first time checking out the podcast, welcome to the madness, dear listener. But to give you a bit of an idea what we're all about, each week we pick a particular movie. It might be a new release, it might be a cult classic, it might be a film that you've never heard of before. And we gather together some contributors and we talk about the film. Sometimes we get a bit spoilerific, sometimes we struggle to stay on topic. But... We try to have a bit of fun in the process. So if this is your first time listening, I hope you enjoy the podcast. If you're a returning listener, then thank you for continuing to check in. This week, we've the start of something slightly different. There's not much me in this podcast, as I'm handing over the reins to my deputy editors, Therese Ray and Joseph McElroy. They're kickstarting a new strand of podcast programming dubbed Crime Scene to Screen as they look back at some of the movies that have been inspired by real-life serial killers and individuals. They're kicking it off by looking back at director Bong Joon-ho's 2003 feature Memories of Murder. It's recently been re-released in cinemas. It's currently screening at the Queen's Film Theatre here in Belfast. So without any further ado, let's get on and get stuck into this week's show. Hi guys, it's Trez here, um, one of the deputy editors of Bunterflix, and this is a slightly different episode of the podcast that some people might not be used to. For today's recording, I'm joined by Bunterflix's very own uh, Joe McElroy. Hi Trez. So Jim has kindly let us come on and take the reins, and today we, we decided to start with a film called Memories of Murder mainly because it is getting uh, re-released. Well, it has. It was re-released in 4K and Blu-ray on the 11th of September, and it was being released again. So I know that the QFT has it on until the 24th of September, but it's also available on Curzon streaming as well. So Memories of Murder, it is directed by the Oscar-winning, well, the recently Oscar-winning, and as me and Joe said before, we're just going to put in a statement here that we apologise because we're probably going to butcher every single one of these names. Um, but we're going to try. And um, yeah, apologies. But um, the film was directed by Bong Jong-ho, which I hope is right. And it, I really feel like I'm really announcing my words. Um, but for those of you who don't know, he um, directed the, the big hitter last year, Parasite which um, really surprised people. We've both seen it. Joe, were, were you a fan of the director before we seen Parasite? Did you know anything about Memories of Murder? Or um, well, yeah, I've always been uh, you know, sort of a fan of Bon Joon-ho. Uh, it was originally through Snowpiercer that I sort of found my way into him and his films. 
uh it's a film i really really like i love the whole idea of the you know the class conflict and the you know train in a post-apocalyptic world and that there you know that really drew me in uh and then from there there was the likes of okja which was this like big netflix release i really liked that too uh then obviously parasite which i think is, you know still a front runner for yeah. film of the year this year uh and on top of that um i really like the host i only seen mm-hmm. it for the first time when you know we screened it ourselves uh around the start of the year um but having said that i didn't know much about his other films new like a uh, mother and barking dogs don't bite and then obviously yeah. this uh film here memories of murder uh i didn't even know this was based on a true story i knew little to nothing about it and that really seems to be the case uh you know outside of south korea really it wasn't really well known this case and these murders and uh, i might as well just mention the case itself now it's uh, you know the film itself is based on the uh and here's where i'm going to mess things up but i'm going (laughs) to give it a go the weizong serial murders uh which took place between 1986 and 1991 but the film itself follows the uh follows it from the perspective of two local detectives and a detective from seoul who are tasked with catching the killer so uh it's basically just following them and their you know uh investigation into who done it mm-hmm. um much like yourself i really came to um director bong through parasite um, but it was actually another podcast that I listened to that I came across Memories of Murder. Um, it is called Based on a True Crime. And if anybody else is interested, um, it's a husband and wife who basically kind of do things sort of similar to what me and Joe were trying to do. Um, they cover the true crime and then the film that was inspired by it. So it was just one day I was listening to the episode and came across it and as you said was like how does no one know about this like it's mm-hmm. horrific it, it's basically fact... yeah sorry to interrupt you i'm just no, saying you're... it basically was for them what the zodiac killer was for america yep. you know um and and because it was unsolved for so long obviously zodiac is still unsolved but people have their different opinions on that um but yeah considering that the case was unsolved for so long that you know, there, there was all these suspicions that it was the Zodiac and that there was links to the Zodiac and different crazy sort of scenarios. Um, but strangely enough, um, back last year, they finally matched um, the killer to to the the killings 20 something, you know, more than 20 years on, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is another name I'm going to butcher. And again, apologies to anybody out there who speaks Korean and is just shaking their head at us. Um, so late last year, um, Lee Chun Jai was um, identified as a suspect um, in the cases as DNA had linked him to um, one of the victim's underwear. So suppose rather than go to the end we should go back to the start um and mm-hmm. with everything you know people who follow true crime they're always interested in the childhood because nine times out of ten if you've had a bad childhood if you've been knocked on the head or had some traumatic experience most of the time you're a dead-on person there's a, a, a 
95% chance that you might turn out to be a serial killer. Yeah, but, like when I was a child, I fell down the stairs and banged my head in the ground, but I have yet to kill anyone. So it doesn't really, you know, uh, lead doesn't it, up. in a direct. Yeah, it doesn't add up. No, doesn't add but up. Is a, um, but it is a box check and exercise, just like you said. Yeah, um, I think it's the, um, it was the guys in Mindhunter who, um, sort of coined the, the, the three prong um, sort of term if um, the nature versus nurture. So if you're prone to killing animals, if you had a bump on your frontal lobe, if I'm correct, um, and then if you had an interest in being a fire starter, um, they noticed that that was three traits, um, three possible traits of someone who would go on to be a serial killer. But um, for Lee, so he was born um, in January 1963 in Hwasong, Hwasong, South Korea. I think you pronounce it definitely better than me. But Wait till. Yeah. Um, where he, he was basically situated until he was 30. So he spent most of his life in the area. Um, so, I mean, he was well known. He knew the area quite well. Um, I think there was some suspicions um, while they were initially investigating suspects that it was someone who was out of town um, and then they went down the, the route that it's somebody who, who lived quite locally because of where the killings had, had taken place and um, it was like rice paddy grounds so it obviously speaks volumes that the area that he mainly killed and he lived there for most of his life um, but as he said like everything it's expected that Lee had a pretty traumatic childhood um, he experienced the loss of a sister when he was quite young, to, quite young, sorry, to drowning, and there was also suspected sexual abuse by his older relative. Um, this was never sort of confirmed, but as you can see, that he didn't have the greatest childhood. Um, but some people who don't have good childhoods grow up to be amazing people. I suppose it's just one of those things that, um. It, it, it is really the sort of nature versus nurture idea. Um, then, so after after high school, I think he joined the army, Joe, did he? Yeah, he joined uh, the South Korean army. Uh, it's kind of a mandatory thing over in Korea anyway, and it, it goes right to this day uh, where you have to serve a certain amount of time uh, in the Korean army. And uh, in his time in the um, Korean army, he was a tank pilot. Uh, oh, so yeah, so he's he got, he got a lot of action there. Uh, <laughs> but after he was discharged from the army, um, he worked in construction and as a fork uh, forklift driver. So he was sort of you know dealing menial work, low level tasks, um, you know sort of low uh, earnings and that there. Um, but then eventually he got married to a bookkeeper, and uh, I believe that was in the. I think it was the late 80s. But anyway, uh, it was a year into this uh, marriage, he decided to quit his job. So he was sort of unemployed in this period. And, uh, you know, you know, you've nothing to do in your hands. You know, a lot of us take up hobbies and that there. And he decided to engage in uh, a very macabre hobby in serial killing. Yeah. Um, he clearly thought that he was a capped man. Um, as his wife was a bookkeeper. So he thought, what else would I do with my time? Um, so yeah, basically from the 15th of September, 1986 to the 3rd of April, 91, Lee murdered 10 women 
ranging in ages from 14 to 71, which is just shocking. Um, yeah. Like, I think I'm almost sure that the, the 71 year old was his first, um, yes. which, which is just mad to go with something that extreme. But I mean, he, he sounded like he, he was a, an absolute demon mm-hmm. anyway. Um, not to interrupt you again, Trace, but I think we should maybe just put out a bit of a warning, just given the severity of his triggered. crimes and yeah. yeah, and just how you know sort of nasty they were, yeah, and essentially. But uh, yeah, um, in each case, you know, the uh, the women were found either bound, gagged, and uh, raped, but in uh, most cases they were strangled uh, by their own clothes, and in some yeah. cases the bodies were mutilated with umbrellas, forks, or razor blades. So it's clear that these were like murders that he took great pleasure in, you know. And great uh, preparation as well yes. too, to, to have that stuff with him every single time. Yeah, just to inflict as much pain and misery on whoever, you know, uh, fell victim to him, unfortunately. Yeah, literally innocent women who had had felt safe, had felt safe enough to walk home on their own on a dark night. Um, yeah. Like a 14-year-old girl a young child thought that she was safe in her own town in her own district um and you know it became one of the most high profile cases in korea again which is mad to think that it's very it's not even very well known um coming back to the podcast i i find a lot of my research and normally when i'm looking at these type of things and i i found very little on the case that had been covered by any other podcasts as well um in, you know, for something so big and unsolved, cases are normally popular in the sense that they're, they're a mystery. You know, the, the thing that this man spanned this period of time and was never caught. Well, he, he was now, thank God. But, um, you know, the police spent over two million man days. So I would say that's basically just working days investigating the crime and they interviewing over 21,280 people. Like, in some places, that's the, that's the size of a town. Like, you, they must have asked and investigated every single person in that town. Yeah, it's like and a f- small football stadium, essentially. You know, yeah. It's just, it, you know, it begs belief, you know, to think that that amount of people were just in, you know, question about it. And the time and effort taken into it. And I know I know, even in, in America around that time that um, DNA, fingerprint DNA and... Um, familial DNA and stuff like that it was still very in its early stages so um you know they had enough to deal with over there with Ted Bundy and Wayne Gacy and everybody um but you can only imagine that if if the likes of the US was having difficulty processing investigating crimes with more sort of um resources whereas here they had literally next to nothing so you can understand that it would have been extremely frustrating for the police putting all that work in when, you know, they really didn't have very much to work with. Um, and then I think that's what, what took it so long for them to, you know, eventually find out who it was. So, yeah, as I said, um, unsolved for basically the past 20-odd years. Um, mm-hmm. And he... I think he was caught, was it December 93 or? Um, yeah, uh, essentially what happened to Lee, um, 
you know, even yeah, just to take it back to Lee, it wasn't even not even his capture, but before that, he was arrested uh, yeah. in September 1989. He broke into a house in uh, sorry, I'm going to mispronounce this again, but it, I believe it was called Guang Guangzhou Sun, and um, it was one you know he was found with you know his usual props, he gloves, and uh, I believe it was a rope or something for strangulation yeah. in his hand. And uh, he was arrested after the landlord discovered him, but he tried to pass it off. Oh, he was running away from someone. Someone was trying to catch him. So uh, initially he was sentenced to a year and a half in prison for the robbery and violence, but he appealed it uh, uh, after, you know, the judiciary system bought his story of uh, running away from someone who tried to attack him. So he only got two years probation instead. But uh, eventually, like you said, he was arrested for a murder uh, in 1990, and it it all came to a head in 1993 when his wife left him. And in the aftermath of his wife leaving, he invited over his sister-in-law to his house to sort of, you know, decompress and go over things. Uh, But it was true that he he took advantage of her, you know, her pity and her kindness and he drugged and raped her and eventually killed her. So to avoid suspicion, he hid her body and went to his father-in-law to suggest, uh, oh, we have to report her uh, her missing. And that sort of shows how methodically he was. He was like, okay, I'm going to kill her, but then I'm going to cover my tracks. I'm going to make sure that no one will suspect it's me. But uh, eventually her body was found two days later and he was arrested because as methodical as he was there, he was quite stupid too in that he constantly asked the police strange questions like, oh, uh, how long do you, how long would uh, the person who done this get sentenced and stuff like that there. And, you know, very unusual yeah, I think, questions. I think no they are, he ask. kept asking every day, like, um, have you found the body yet? Like, obviously it was only two days, but he, it, I read somewhere that he was basically berating the police to ask them how they found the body. Um, how long does it take to find the body? How, how long does it take for our body to decay? Just like stuff that is seriously putting you in the firing line. Yeah, like um, if you're like sister or brother or, or any sort of relative uh, or even in-law, you know, in any sense, if something bad had happened to them and they'd went missing, why would you ask these questions in a million years? Like it's, it just begs belief, uh, just like you said. And I think as well, because he was the last person that had been with her and it was known that... The, he was the last person that was with her that's normally who they look at um, yeah. it just so happened in this case that it it was him um, and even to go to her father offering to help and you know that that's a big thing with um, sociopaths that they normally try to get involved in their crime like they want to be part of everything in the news um, you know searching for people I think um, I think John Wayne Gacy because he, he was quite popular um, in his neighbourhood and he joined in on a few search parties for some of the, the victims that, that he had murdered. And um, it, it, was, it was recently, I was listening to a podcast on it and they had said things, you know, that he um, had went to the parents' house and, um, you know, was offering to cook them dinner and offering to give them money. And, and you know, you, you look at that person and just think, what? what makes you that type of you know what makes you into that type of person to be that involved and I would say for Lee um it was probably an intention type thing you know his wife had left him and he probably thought that with everything it's clear that he 
likes the control of, you know, being able to drug somebody, put them under his sort of um, control. He can do whatever he wants with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially when it comes to mutilating them, like mutilating them, sorry, the, the embarrassment and stuff like that. So um, I think at the time, it's just it's just as well that he was arrested for this because you normally yes he had um however many years and 10 innocent women lost their lives but i would imagine that if he wasn't caught at this point after what had happened with his wife i think it would have only just escalated um um, and went far worse um because yeah as i said he he was uh, finally arrested then and sentenced in september 95 um for 20 years for the murder and as you can imagine strangely enough the serial murders and how song just all just automatically stopped um so they they had nothing and then i think that's where we should maybe come in with the film because it's it's sort of in the break um the film was released in 2003 and lee still wasn't caught at this point um so there's a lot of sort of um symbols and I suppose directorial ideas that director bong took sort of as a ploy to wean out the killer and um, yeah. so if you you want to basically give a, a short um bio into what the film is i know you did earlier but just be, now yeah, that everybody knows um, what we're talking about instead of just waffling on yeah it's just like you said uh Trez, it's uh, you know the film itself is loosely based on the uh was young uh serial murders that took place between 86 and uh, 91. And it focuses primarily from the perspective of uh, two detectives, mainly uh, one's a local detective uh, tasked with uh, trying to solve the murder. But then uh, he gets help from a detective from Seoul who uh, volunteers to help out with the investigation. And it's basically, the film is basically the two of them sort of at heads with each other and their ideals of what are the best methods to catch a killer. You know, the local detective is very much of the attitude of, um, you know, he kind of bases things off what he sees in American detective shows, whereas the other one's much more, you know, methodical in that he would base, he would look for patterns and stuff like that there and then try and make connections. Uh, whereas the other's sort of basing things in hunches. Uh, the film itself, um, is actually based on a play uh, that was done in 1996 called Come See Me by uh, Kim Kwan uh, Rim. And uh, essentially, uh, Bong Joon-ho used that as you know a way of structuring the uh, film itself. And yeah. in, in essence, you know, the film does take a lot of artistic license. Um, like, right, I think rightly, rightly so. He doesn't me- he doesn't mention any of the victims' names. Uh, and he doesn't really dwell on, you know, their actual murders at all. There's only a few moments where you see some of the attacks, but they're so quick and sudden that, you know, they're effective. It's not, it's not gruesome and it's not yes. over the top and anything that, as you said, would be disrespected to the family because, you know, they're not going to want to see their loved ones murder fully reenacted on screen. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that, that's what I mean. He doesn't want to dwell on that aspect of things. He uh, essentially he said he wanted to make the film because he wanted to, uh, he wanted something that reflected the chaos of living in South Korea in the 1980s when there was a lot of political turmoil. Uh, the film touches on this as well. Like there's like a student riot that takes place at one point and the 
police officers are just trying to make their way from one end of town to another in the midst of this. Mm-hmm. And uh, you even get that sense of chaos um, through the way that they're carrying out their investigation and in the, the way, you know, you, you get that from the get-go. Like uh, at the very start of the film, you know, they find a body. But essentially, you know, it's left out in the open. There's children running everywhere. There's tractors going in the back, uh, the background trampling over potential evidence. Yeah. And it, the whole thing's just complete disorganized chaos. And it's really a reflection of, like you said, you've sort of alluded to it earlier about the actual case itself, how far behind they were in terms of uh, forensic evidence and stuff like that there. They thought that they could solely rely on the idea of uh, obtaining a confession to you know find the perpetrator Saladale, yeah yeah but uh, as the film shows as well you know the the manner in which they conducted interrogations was just completely ridiculous like um they would inter- essentially torture people throughout interrogation you know they would kick them and punch them and whatever and uh there's no legal representation for anyone who's being questioned and stuff like that there so everything is uh, confessions and everything are contained completely under duress and uh they just try and pass that as you know uh just standard police work standard police and work yeah exactly um but that's the thing and you and like you said it's from the perspective of someone who at this stage doesn't know who the who uh, Lee Chun, who Lee was, sorry, and uh, you know that he had committed these crimes. Uh, and it's the final shot of the film. This doesn't really give anything away, so don't worry. Um, it's where the main detective, uh, Detective Park, is looking directly uh, into the camera as mm-hmm. if to say, you know, he's almost like asking the the killer to come forward and confess to their crimes because, you know, basically everything you've seen before, are you not feeling guilty about this year? Confess. Yeah. You know, that's what he's more or less saying. But what did you um, think about the film, Tris? Um, well, I, so I had, I listened to the podcast, as I said, um, from Based on a True Crime and actually reached out to you um, and we had a chat about it and I think the first time I watched it, I found it quite hard to find um, a release which makes sense now that it's been re-released, so it's easier to find. Um, but I, w- I was surprised at how how much he, he stayed true to the, the actual story, but in the most respectful way. So um, as we've mentioned before, the the victims um, were strangled um, and tied up and basically covered with their own clothes and underwear. Um, so that, you know, that would be one of the sort of patterns that the other detective was looking for. Um, but they, I suppose, from more of a cinematic directoral sort of um, idea, Bong used the colour red, which um, in most films, you know, if, if you've seen Goodfellas, Scorsese filters the whole thing red. Um, it it often leads to danger, um, and that is one of the, the big signs that um, in the film, all of the victims are murdered, um, either wearing a red item, or you know like a red coat, or even you know if it had red underwear or like a red sock or something like that. Something on them had to be red. Um, another one of the sort of added patterns is that the killer would only murder. Um, on a rainy day 
and there's quite a lot of rain in this as you can imagine um but again i think it was added more in for for cinematic purposes you know a dark dank heavy rain night a woman's out on her own um it's going to be quite terrifying and horrific enough as it is um and it it i think i i wondered if it was true that that's what happened but um it, the real victims they were murdered um at, at all time i think most there was majority were at night but there was some that was during the day i think the younger the, the young 14 year old was maybe during the day um yeah. so there is so there's some comparisons and there, there's some things that are completely different and you can understand that um while this is a true story and um i'm sure director bong wanted to give it as much respect as possible he also as a director would want to have taken his own spin on the story as well and I don't think there's an issue with it. Um, there's other films that we might cover um, that are based on a true crime and almost offend the, the true story. Um, mm. So he, he definitely does have great respect. And I think what I find as well, I don't know about you, but um, he does write a lot of comedy in the, his films as as like dark and you know awful and horrible as it is there's some scenes where I don't know if I find myself laughing because it was awkward or you know you're talking about the two local detectives they were almost like a Laurel and Hardy sort of um good cop bad cop pantomime performance you have um Park Man, which is sort of the, the main um American obsessed or um detective sorry who always says, I can, I can look at somebody and I can tell immediately that they're guilty, you know, different stuff like that. Whereas then you have, um, uh, this is going to be absolutely butchered, Ko Young-Koo, which is his other partner, who just seems like an absolute hothead and just drop kicks everybody and anybody at any time he gets. And I've, I don't know about you, but every time he did that in the film, during interrogation scenes, I couldn't help but laugh. No, and, and no, I don't. I didn't. I don't know if it was meant to be funny, but any time, like I, I would say, probably three down at least ten drop kicks. And no, no, I agree with you in that. There, uh, it's literally every scene he's in, he just more or less, uh, you know, drop kicks his way into a scene or out of a scene. Um, but it, it is just absolutely, you know, I think the thing that sort of makes it funny is just how ridiculous and how sudden. It is, and you're sitting there going, "Well, what the hell just happened there?" You know, and uh, it's it's the way in which you, <laughs> it's it's just the way it would take you by surprise because they're sitting there and they're talking about a brutal murder, and then out of the blue, he would just fly from the other end of the room and hit someone. But I do agree with you that I think that it, the film really is laced with a lot of black humor, and there's yeah. no way of getting around that. But I think it's. I think the term that would probably best suit the film is that it's respectful entertainment because like you said, um, Bon Joon-ho, he's not making a documentary, he is making a feature film. So whilst he is respectful to what happened, because you know he lived through this yeah. and this period in uh, time in South Korea, but he also, uh, you know, he wants to entertain. And one of the main thing, you know, one of the funniest scenes for me uh, comes from Detective Park, um, who's played by Song Kang-ho, who has been in 
the majority of Bon Joon Ho's yeah, like films. like all of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's been more or less all of them. He's like his right-hand man, his go-to man. He's like, a, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio with Martin Scorsese, you know, they have that kind of relationship. But uh, yeah, it's the scene where, uh, I believe it's the cop from Seoul, it's, um, yeah, yeah, the Detective Steele. He is, you know, he's off to investigate and to set up a, a sort of a trap to catch the killer based on the patterns that have been emerging. Yeah. But he's so obsessed with this hunch that the fact that the killer didn't leave behind any, you know, sort of pubic hair, despite, you know, committing yeah. acts of rape. Yeah, I know He is obsessed with the idea that he will, fi- if he finds a man without pubes, he will yeah. find the killer. Nice. <laughs> and uh, he Just essentially Carmen. goes, yeah, yeah, he, he essentially like, goes to local spas and, you know, hot baths and that there and it's just the way it's the it's the way he does it is his body language like the scenes are more or less silent but he's just sitting there and he's just sort of gazing around him and gazing <laughs> at the you know the pubic regions of all these men just all these men and then the, the, even the scene you know after when he's back in his girlfriend's house and he's like i'm sick of showers he's like yeah. how many more showers <laughs> do i have to take until i find a man that doesn't have any pubic hair and you're like this uh-huh. like you are going but he's so, um, what's the word? Sort of determined in his convictions. Like he's set, right, this he's is the way we find him and that's com- it. Completely, just hard, like just narrows in into this one thing. Yeah. Um, and I think, it, I think it happens with, aside from that lead, I think, as I said, he at one point gets to the point where he can look somebody dead in the eye and he'll know. So they're um, interrogating Another like an earlier um, suspect who is the son of um, the, a local restaurateur, and you know um, he 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 know he looks at him at one point and knows straight away that that, that he killed him, and they continue to go down the tirade. They try to bury him, just different prosecute the prosecution methods. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but it it takes for. Detective CEO to come and you basically go like what like what the fuck are you doing like and you know he he actually sees him planting evidence and he sees him you know go and putting footprints in different places and stuff like that so as you said it it probably is funny Parasite is like such a thriller but there's so many funny bits in it as well so it it, it might just be uh sort of theme that he uses in all of his films whether or not you would say that this is the type of film to include that it's completely up to yourself but I don't think it takes away or as we've said disrespects the victims in any way just adding that sort of you know light moments yeah because it's a reflection of their incompetence not a reflection on you know anything wrong that the victim's done or anything like that it's focusing mainly on you know, I'm going back to, I'm repeating myself here, but the chaotic nature of South Korea at the time and how incompetent these cops were. And like yeah. you said, even with the idea of forensics and that there, they were so far behind with it. Uh, eventually when they do ask for, you know, help with forensics, you know, they send over samples to America and then that leads to, you know, the big dramatic finale and what happens um, there. Which, which I think that without giving too much away, that final scene is just so upsetting. Mm-hmm. I think the first time I watched it, um, I didn't know as much as I knew about the case. And like you're, you know, you're at the end, 
you have your own opinion. I was raging the first time I watched it when it ended. Um, but when I watched it again on Friday, I actually found myself getting upset. And knowing that we know now, you know, th- you know, things are different. But just, um, you know, even imagining some of the victim, the victims' families watching the film and, and kind of seeing how that sort of pans out, and um, you end up really hoping that there's going to be a really good outcome at the end of it, and and there's not. And I think that transition from so there's more or less a final scene and then there's a final final thing yes, um, like which you've already talked about yeah um you know, the the brutalness of how sharp that end scene finishes and just fades to black and you you're like is is that it and then it just you know shapes how many years forward or whatever um and sort of gives the background of that this killer was never caught and that it's based on a true story and it's real life. And um, I had a, I came out on the second watch having a, a different respect and sort of love for the film because I knew more about the story. I knew how awful, as you said, aside from the murders, South Korea at the time was completely chaotic it was political constant political wars and um it's still going on to this day and um you just think yourself like these people had enough to deal with without a serial killer being present and basically taking away 10 innocent women from their community it it just it, it wasn't fair and it's not something that you want to think about either yeah, it's like uh, Detective Park, you know, his sort of reaction at the end is sort of a reflection of Korea when you think about it by the very end, because he's completely broken. Yeah. He, he thinks there's going to be an answer. You know, he sort of buys into the idea of like, uh, sorry, this is Detective Sue I'm talking about. He buys in the idea that the Detective Park had is like, there's a clear answer. Yeah. We're going to get it. And it's not there. And that's what breaks him at the end. It's and not cut um, dry. Yeah. That, that's, I mean, there's no cut and dry answer to this. And that's what these people had to live with. Yeah. And that sums everything up perfectly uh, until, you know, obviously the eventual outcome of the case. So do you want to even go over the outcome of the case there, Trace? Yeah, so when I say thankfully he was caught, thankfully he was caught. But it, as we've just mentioned, this isn't really a sort of cut and dry answer the people um, had hoped but in um, September last year so basically a year ago um, the Korean police had had been constantly investigating um, this this crime because as we said it, it was such a shock and left such a detrimental effect on the community um, but through this breakthrough it was announced that Lee had been identified as a, sub, a suspect um, so basically DNA that they were able to um, extract from one of the victim's underwear had matched um, Lee's basically prison DNA that was, was submitted, um, which led that department to link um, four of the 10 murders to him. So they, he was obviously, he was, he's already in prison for the murder of his sister-in-law. Um, so when they went to interview him, he initially denied all allegations 
um, didn't cooperate at all. And it was a few days later, he then confessed to 14, all 14 murders um, and over 30 rapes. And it's also, um, there's, there's a few sources out there that he may have killed more than 14 people. Um, and he may have killed people outside of ha- Song as well. Um, but it's not actually clear or known how many people he killed. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the most unfortunate thing is, um, because of the statute of limitations on the case and on the DNA had passed, he hasn't been able to be charged for any of the cases. No, because it's so, 15 years in yeah. South Korea. Um, which is just awful. Um, I mean, he's, he's in prison. Uh, he's there. Whether or not he will ever leave now is another thing. I mean, I know they can't charge him, but they can obviously refuse him bail or anything like that. So he's still serving time in prison um, for the rape and murder of a sister-in-law. But it's just very heartbreaking to think that the other families of his victims won't get the justice. Um, because something like the statute of limitations, which has affected many, many a court case around the world, um, but I suppose on the other hand, you have to look at it that something that people probably thought was n- never going to be solved um, just so happened it did. And I know with um, other cases, familial DNA is started to, starting to be used in certain cases. So we had um, the Golden State Killer was um, caught two years ago. So um, hopefully if there is you know any other sort of horrific unsolved murders like that around the world in South Korea um, hopefully this sort of breakthrough in research will will help but as I said it, it's just it's awful to think that those other victims won't get the justice. Yeah I think that's the big takeaway from this and from you know the idea of forensics nowadays people are going to get answers but they're not going to get justice uh, because of you know like you said the statute limitations um, you know, you may find out that a certain person, individual or individuals were involved in a certain killing, but you will never be able to have them convicted of their crimes if they're not already in prison uh, yeah. in some shape or form. But uh, it is a very tragic case this year. You know, it's it's bittersweet in a way, you know, in the sense that, you know, this guy was caught eventually uh, for what he'd done, but it's the fact that he will never be sentenced for what he'd done. Yeah, and the families have to just live with that and sort of try and move on with it. That's the that's the worst aspect of it all. Um. So that's pretty much it, then, isn't it? It's it, yeah. I mean, the film itself, aside from from the background, um, it is a beautiful film, and um, for anybody there who who's new to director Bong, um, you know, he has such a back catalogue as we've mentioned before that people should definitely see but I think with this film being re-released I think you can rent it on Curzon for £10. It was great to look into the film aside from from the crimes themselves which are horrific the film is quite beautiful and shot so well if you haven't um, if this is the first time you're coming to um, director Bong or you know you've seen Parasite and you want to go down the route of some of his other films um, he's such a back catalogue that you can view but I would definitely recommend this film and again if you watched it and you're you're more inclined or you would like to find out more information there's so much 
online about this um, horrific murder. And I think at the end of the day, it's just making sure that we remember the victims and just continue to be respectful for something that happened and will never be given the justice it deserves. But that's just some things, some things happen that way, unfortunately. Yeah, it's like you said, sort of, that's the way life goes sometimes. But yeah, highly recommend the film as well. Just uh, like you said, uh, I think it's one of his best films. But then again, I don't think he's made a bad film yet. No. Uh, and anyone who's constantly, you know, bitching or moaning about subtitles, just like Bong Joon-ho says himself, once you get over that one-inch barrier, you're open to a whole wonderful world 100%. of 100%, yeah. And just get over yourself okay that's all you have to do just get over yourself and really embrace the film and you'll be really rewarded because uh you know south korea for me is producing some of the best films uh in recent years and this is no exception uh i know it was 2003 but you know just the work of bong joon ho in general uh as well as some of his other you know fellow uh, countrymen and country women um but yeah like you said i highly recommend the film and i hope it does sort of open people's eyes up to this case in general and you know it gives them an interest in it and helps them sort of understand what Korea was like at the time um, and yeah like you said just you know hoping that it gives some sort of you know closure or comfort to uh, you know the victims families and the victims in general yeah um, well there we go I think that might be the shortest ever Bantaflex podcast that me and you have ever recorded. Short and sweet. Um, we we aim to have an hour, and it, it's literally an hour on the dot. So um, give you a, or a high five for that, Joe. Yes. Um, but yeah, so as we said at the beginning, um, me and Joe are hoping um, to say kind of do one every month in our crime scene to screen sort of episodic. But um, we're not too sure what we'll cover in the next episode but as I said it's always going to be a film that's based on a true crime or an individual that has influenced film there's plenty out there some that you probably wouldn't even imagine but there's nothing really left to say other than um, if you're not following Banterflix we are across a few socials Um, so we have our website which is just banterflix.com and we've our Instagram at Banterflix, which is the same um, for the Twitter as well. And then we also have a Patreon if you would like to um, support us. It's patreon.com slash Banterflix. Anything and all contributions are welcome. There is a few sort of you know, freebies and things that you would kind of get if you sign up to the Patreon. And other than that, yeah, just look after yourself and um, just don't murder people. Yeah, don't don't let it bump in your head, uh, turn you bad. Yeah. Essentially. <laughs> but that's it. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Trace. So that's pretty much always time for in this week's show. Thanks to Therese and Joe for taking over in this week's show. They'll be back pretty soon with another instalment of Crime Scene to Screen. I'll be intrigued to see what movie they talk about next. As Therese said there, if you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and fix. You can find our complete back catalogue on our website. And as Therese said, you'll also find some information about our Patreon account on the site as well. If you're not willing to financially support us, 
just yet. What you can do, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while and you've been enjoying the podcast, then please leave us a lovely review wherever you get your podcast and fix, because that helps us attract new listeners through the various algorithms that are out there on the interweb. I don't understand them, and I'm pretty sure not a lot of people do. Maybe you do, dear listener, but I know I definitely don't. And if you leave us a review, that really helps us. So that's pretty much enough of me pleading this week. As I say, we'll be back with another episode pretty soon. But for now, until then, goodbye. This has been We Need to Talk About Movies. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit banterflix.com. See you next time.